Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that we have this opportunity and this place here now to gather together. We ask for thy blessing to be with us now as we would look into thy word together that thou wilt feed us with bread of life. <clears throat> we are so much more than just a, a body. We are a mind and a soul as well, Heavenly Father, and all parts of us need to be nourished and fed or we are incomplete. Heavenly Father, be with us now as we would look into thy word together. Be with those that are going through difficulties, especially the sick and chronically ill, those with cancers and those who are dealing also with the loss of loved ones as we've heard already today. Be with them, Heavenly Father, and provide for them. Also those that are spreading thy word throughout this world. Let thy word continue to be uh, sent forth as light into this dark world that men may turn while there is yet time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't think it's out of keeping with what we heard this morning, um, but it was on my heart to meditate from the fifth chapter of Romans. If you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning with the first verse. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, for until the law was in the world, uh, for until the law sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. 
and not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto life eternal by Jesus Christ our Lord. I've read the entire chapter. This morning we heard Nicodemus's question. Jesus said, unless you are born again, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was confused. He didn't understand how he could be born again, or born from above. He thought it meant something like entering the second time into his mother's womb, and he said, how is that even possible? Here we read about the other end of things. We read about death coming in. I would argue that death is actually the one subject that is taboo in our society. You know, it was said of the Victorians, I heard this years ago and it stuck with me. It was said of the Victorians over a century ago now, that they were very comfortable talking about death and dying, but the subject of sex and sexuality was taboo. In today's day and age, it's reversed. Sex and sexuality is fair game, but to talk about death, especially someone else's death, in their presence, that's taboo. We don't want to talk about it. We fear it. This chapter mentions death many, many times. I didn't count it, the numbers aren't significant, but you will see it as a theme coming up again and again. Now it's useful to remember this. Men and women were created by an almighty God with a, uh, an eternal lifespan. We, none of us here will actually cease to be. Annihilation is not in the cards for the human race. We may die, our physical body that is may die, but that death is only a separation. The soul goes on. Most people are comfortable with that idea. They don't, they don't mind that idea. That, that's, that's something that's comfortable. I remember hearing, overhearing a conversation once on a bus 
where someone had died and they said of him that he's gone to a better place. And the thought that came to my mind was, first of all, how do you know that? And second of all, how can you be sure that it's better? But we, we like that idea that somehow that there's a place beyond this life where things are better. People are comfortable with that idea. And so, at least in part, we understand what the scripture tells us about death, that death is not really a finality, but it is instead a, uh, a separation, a division. And if we would look through those, these verses that we've read together, you would see that that is indeed so. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man, that's Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Now, this is not talking about only physical death. This is talking now about a separation that has to do with sin. Because, of course, when Adam sinned, he didn't physically immediately drop dead. He still lived some 900-odd years, according to what Scripture says. But there was an immediate separation between him and God. So where you see this word death, you can in your mind insert the word separation, and that may help you understand. So nevertheless, this separation reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So the rest of humanity didn't have to keep doing the same thing that Adam did in order to receive this death that Adam, that was the penalty for Adam's sin. It simply passed on to all men. The separation existed. Now it says from Adam to Moses, because the Apostle Paul wants us to understand something about sin. Verse 13, sorry, I'm looking farther on in the chapter and I can't find it, it's the next verse. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Paul makes it very clear that when the law came, sin was pointed out in all its ugliness. Before that time period, um, it was not so clear. But God sent the law, which was holy, just, good, for the purpose that man would realize the magnitude of his sin. The, the magnitude of the separation that separated him from God wasn't a matter of just a, a little thing, but it was actually a change in nature, a change in a state of nature. And that man was now existing in a separated state from God. But there is good news, as we heard this morning. For God so loved the world... For God so loved the world. While we were separated from him, while we were his enemies, he still loved us. I appreciated the way that my brother summarized this, the sermon. 
this idea that the love of God that was sent out to us in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, asking for a, a response, a love response from us for his son. That love is tied up with faith. That's why the Apostle Paul begins the chapter by saying, therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we would go back a chapter, we would read about Abraham and the faith that he had. It says of him in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 20, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. So when God sees faith, when God sees a faith response in us, he tells us that he imputes righteousness in exchange for that faith. That is right in God's eyes. Now, why is that? Faith is not some magical pixie dust. It's not something that just gets sprinkled on us. We have a little bit of faith, and now God accepts us. It is a fundamental change of heart, as we heard this morning in the sermon. It's a repentance. See, before action can happen, faith comes first. Faith precedes action. Now, I want you to remember something else that's very important about what God tells us. First of all, when he tells us to do something, he does not imply that we have the power on our own to do it. This is very, very important. You will struggle for years with sin if you do not understand this point. When God commands something of you, he does not expect that you on your own have the power to do it but he commands nonetheless. Why? Why does he do that? He is looking for a faith response. He is looking for someone who trusts the character of the one who's asking it and trusts also that he will supply in spite of that want. This is how faith and humility work together. God tells us he gives grace to the humble. Faith grasps hold of God. Humility says, I can do nothing without you. And God says, I see faith, I impute righteousness. I see humility, I give grace. And with righteousness and grace comes power. That is God's answer to the human problem. That is the answer to bridging the gap between separated men and women and a holy God. It was mentioned this morning about baptism. Some think it's just a symbol. Some uh, believe even to the extreme that there is no salvation outside of baptism. You got a problem then because Christ turned to the thief who was hanging on the cross next to him and said, thou shalt be with me today in paradise. And scripture tells us nowhere that that man was baptized. Both extremes are wrong. So why is baptism important? And why is it more than just a symbol? 
it's bound up, I believe, in what we've read together, and this is maybe my own simplistic understanding. But baptism is a manifestation of faith. If you are unwilling to be baptized, you do not yet fully believe. And God cannot fully attribute righteousness to you. Now, if the desire is there to be baptized, like it was, I remember reading an account uh, from uh, the, the history of the Anabaptist martyrs. There was a man who was taken with the Anabaptists because they met in these secret meetings that were outlawed on pain of death. He was taken by the authorities. They were all put into a room and questioned. And they went through them and they said, have you been baptized? And they got to that man and he said, no, I haven't. And they said, well, then you can, the, the, the death price is not on your head. But then they conferred among themselves and they said, wait a minute, would you be baptized if you had the opportunity? And the man said, yes, I would. He says, I haven't been baptized yet because in my former life, I was a wasteful man. I ran up huge debts. And I determined within myself that I would not uh, bring dishonor to the name of God and his believers by joining the church until those debts were extinguished. And so I had been doing my best to pay them off, but I look forward to that day that I will be baptized into the death of Christ. And they said, good enough, kill him too. God looks for the faith response that says, I will. That's what he looks for from each one. If you remember when Jesus was there by the pool of Siloam, he spoke with the man who was crippled, laying there for years. And he said, do you want to be well? The man said, sir, I've got no one to help me get to the pool. When the angel stirs the water, someone always goes down before me. And it says, Christ took him by the head, hand and said, stand up and walk. What happened in that moment between that command and that outstretched hand and when that man rose up? Faith was there. Faith made the difference. Faith caused him to reach out and grasp the hand and try to stand to do something he knew he couldn't do. It was not in him. Yet faith, which God imputes as righteousness, and humility, where God gives grace, came together, and that man walked before them all. This is the mystery. This is what God looks for. Humility, faith. Neither of them are works. Humility simply recognizes the bankrupt state that we're in. That we have nothing, can do nothing. I can't take an admission of bankruptcy to a bank and deposit it in my account. That's ridiculous. Faith in the one that offers simply states that I recognize that I can do nothing and therefore it must come from him. Again, no work there. Simply a belief. You know, I'm so thankful that the Lord made it this way. Can you imagine how it would be for us 
if God waited until Abraham was willing to offer his son on, that, on Mount Moriah, on that heap of stones, and said, now I'm going to impute righteousness, what would you do to be counted righteous before God? What would he require of you? He took Abraham all the way to the point where he asked him to sacrifice his son. If our righteousness depended on an action that great, I can tell you, at least for myself, I would fall far short of it. But God has made the way open to all of us. Why? Because he loved us. Because in his love, he wanted no barrier to stand between anyone who wished to be reconciled with him. He took it all on himself. It was all poured out on his son on Calvary for us. It was the most gracious thing that God could do. No one was left outside of that. Just find the verse. I'll go from memory. <laughs> this chapter that we read together tells us that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Have you thought about that? Have you thought about what that means? Where sin abounds, grace has much more abounded. That abounding is not comparing God's grace to his justice, say. We just had a little conversation around the piano here at lunch. You go wrong when you compare any attribute of God with another attribute of his. It puts you on the wrong track. God is what he is in the fullest extent possible. And, and the attributes of God that are explained to us through scripture are there that we can, we can, we can begin to understand what God is like. But that does not, don't, don't mistake that uh, for meaning that we can understand God. He is a mystery. He's God. If you could understand him, he would cease to be God. He would be big enough to be confined to your mind. If your mind was big enough to circle itself around God. God is not like that. So when it says that grace abounds, you know, I think some people have a, have a funny idea that in, in the Old Testament, God's justice was greater than his mercy, but in the New Testament, his mercy is greater than his justice. Don't kid yourself. God was never any more or less gracious than he has ever been. That's how great God's grace is. That's how great his mercy is. But his justice is also great. So be very careful when you compare one with the other. When it says that grace abounded, what it's referring to is compared to us. So take comfort. Whatever sin you may have committed, 
whatever transgression, even if it would be for a lifelong, is still less than the grace of God. His grace is that great. Now, in theory, you may all say, yeah, that's, 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 that's fine, I understand that, that's nothing new. But think about it now. How quickly are we willing to write off other people? How quickly do we lose our tempers? How quickly does our opinion turn from good to evil of someone based on their actions? God's grace is so great that wherever sin abounds, and believe me, it abounds in this world, his grace exceeds it. The two things that, we, that I referred to earlier are, are all that is required, all that God requires from us. Humility and faith working together to produce that new life, that new birth, that birth from above that Christ talked about when he spoke with Nicodemus. The Apostle Paul underlines these things for us now. And he, he does it by way of comparison. Verse 8 says, But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This gives us a little picture into how great God's love is. He didn't wait until he saw a faith response. He didn't wait until he saw humility and then he said, okay, now these people are worthy of my son dying in their place. He was slain, it says, from the foundation of the world, from the very beginning. Every lamb offered on Jewish altars from uh, the first probably two lambs that were killed and their skins taken to clothe Adam and Eve right through until when Christ was there in the temple. All of those sacrifices were but a pale echo of what Christ had already done. God exists outside of time, and though he came into the world in the fullness of time and was sacrificed on Calvary, that, that sacrifice had already taken place before the foundation of the world. Now think about this. If God had already done this ahead of time out of his great love, listen to what Paul writes. Much more than, verse 9, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more Here's that abounding again. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. For those that may not have heard it before, allow me to repeat it again. The translators of the King James Version invented a word because there simply was not one in the English language to explain what this meant. They created the word atonement, and it simply means at-one-ment. The, the, the state of being brought back together, that's what they were trying to explain. Sin had brought death or separation, as I said. Christ brought this at-one-ment, this, this bringing together again a fallen man with a loving God in the only way that it could be accomplished. 
Not only that, not only was the sacrifice made and the separation removed, but what Christ won back for us was greater than what Adam lost in the first place. That's the amazing thing about God. He always exceeds expectations. When God makes a promise and he fulfills that promise, the fulfillment of that promise is always greater than the expectation of the promise. This is something you can test in Scripture. Go look for it yourself. Look what he says about the promise of his Father, and then look what happened when the Holy Spirit came. Look what he says to, to, to um, Abraham about that coming seed, and then look what happened when Christ came, and how much greater it was than just simply a miracle child born to a couple in their 90s. God's promise is always greater. The fulfillment is always greater than the expectation. So having been rescued from that separation, we are not just taken back into a state of innocency in a garden. No. We're given sonship with the Lord of glory. Not only sonship, but an inheritance that's incorruptible. A new heaven, a new earth even better than the one that was lost. Because the kingdom of God is now with men. Scripture tells us. Can you see now what a great crime, what a horrendous evil it is to reject this kind of love? Love that has done all. Love that asketh all of me, the hymn writer says. This is the only proper response. He gave all, I must give all in return. This is why scripture compares it also to a new birth. A new beginning, a new nature, a new reality. Not a patched up old one. Not simply a squaring of accounts and that's it. When when we welcome the birth of a new child into the family. What a joy that is. What a special time to look at that new life that's part of us. The whole family rejoices around the new child. That's how it is. That's how it's supposed to be. And that's why I, I believe the Lord used, particularly used that, that analogy, that explanation, born from above into a new family with a new nature. Elsewhere, it does talk about the adoption, and I believe that's talking more about, about rights and positions, but he specifically talks about a new birth. And when we see the way a, a, a baby is, and we experience the joy, the love that comes with it, we can better understand, I think, what God looks for in us. Not a patched up old nature, but a brand new one. The final, I'd just like to reread those last three verses here. Last four, where the Apostle Paul sums this up. This idea of faith producing righteousness, 
this idea of uh, humility allowing God's grace to come forth. He says, therefore, as by the offense of one, that's Adam, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, that's Christ, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. The gift is made free to all. No conditions, no strings attached. No man or woman, woman is excluded from that free gift. But do you notice there, he says, upon all men unto justification. We can read what that means. Go back to the previous chapter and find out what justifies. Anyone can believe. I really like the way that Brother Doug said it this morning. Unbelief is a constant moral decision. Perhaps it would be better not to think of it as unbelief, but disbelief. A desire not to believe. A looking for excuses not to believe. God doesn't make any allowance for that. Love never pushes itself on something. Love looks for a response. Love cannot be coerced. No one can make you love them. Offers can be made, entreaties made, gifts offered even to, to maybe uh, encourage a response. But love has to be freely given. Some of you may think that, even as I did at one point, God, if you're there, just show yourself already. Why play games? I realized, to my shame, that he had. He had again and again and again and again, and I had rejected it. I always wanted something more. It's like a spoiled child after opening all these gifts going, there's got to be something else here. You kept the really, the really good stuff. Where is it? Can we not see? Can we not see what he did? Can we not see what he did through his son? Can we not see how low he made that bar of entry? So easy. Humble yourself and believe. That's it. Your past life, your baggage, your, your record of sin, doesn't matter. Your parentage, your background, doesn't count. Your intelligence, doesn't matter either. Your credentials, not important. Humble yourself and believe, that's it. What more could he, he have done? For as by one man's disobedience, Many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at the difference. Sin could only bring about death, a one-time separation. That was it, a dead end. But this gift of grace, through Jesus Christ, brings life. And as we all know, birth is just the beginning. How much greater is life 
than death. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. When I was younger, reading the fifth chapter of Romans, I thought God was unfair. I read that by one man's offense, sin came into the world. Because of something that I had no control over, I was damned. Then I read that Christ came to undo what was Adam's mistake. And I thought, well, Adam's error had more power than Christ's redemption. Adam did something that I couldn't undo, that affected everyone after him. But Christ only came so I could have a choice. How is that fair? But I realized how little I knew about God. God's perhaps his primary attribute, if you can even say that about God, the thing that he revealed about himself is that he is love. Have you ever been in a room, or maybe even a car, with someone who didn't want to be there and made it painfully obvious that they didn't want to be there and they didn't want to be with anyone who was there? We all know what that's like, I think. What was your response to that? Or maybe it was you. response is the same. Separation would be better. You see, to dwell in the presence of one who is love himself, there's only room for the ones who love him in return there. To be in his presence with no love for him would be probably not unlike hell. Satan chose condemnation, damnation even, rather than being in the presence of God. This is why it has to be this way. This is why Christ's sacrifice doesn't automatically save everybody. Because God is looking for a love relationship with his creation. If you are not willing to give that, he has no place for you in his kingdom. It's that simple. But think of what he's done. He's removed every single barrier that could possibly stand in your way. If you love him, come. He's already loved you. He's shown that again and again. May the Lord add whatever was lacking to what was said. This concludes our service.